Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Friday, and it is February 24th, and I have a ton of things we're going to talk about. We'll find out how good those things are. I'm going to be bringing on my buddy, Real Steve Friend, because he and I are going to be doing our Abbott and Costello routine tonight on the Jesse Waters Show. So we wanted to get warmed up and start our day early. Um, it's a little bit earlier my time than his, but I've already shaved my head, got my hair nice and cleaned up, ready to go. I know it's time for TV when I'm ready for a haircut. So we're going to talk about a couple things today. Just going to give you a little preview. We're going to talk about Mardi Gras in Mobile and why the FBI thinks that it's not important to be there. Um, we're going to be talking about the equity movement that's going on in the Jacksonville field office, which is uh, Steve's old office, and uh, how the FBI is just not a serious organization. A little bit more about how the FBI is going after Catholics in the Catholic in the uh, Chicago field office. Then a, uh, a big leak that we had um, and a big publishing of the OPR files by our friend John Solomon. We're going to talk about some of these national security implications of releasing the J6 tapes to Tucker Carlson. Oh, my God. Are we giving away all of our secrets to the Russians by showing video? I don't think so. But we're going to talk about that a little bit. We're going to talk about how every single millennial female is the foreperson for the Trump grand jury down in Atlanta. And I want to get into a little bit more of a serious piece by a guy named Adam Coleman. He's someone that I've connected with on Twitter, and he's talking about single-parent households in this country. I think that's a big deal. But first, we're going to go ahead and welcome my buddy Steve. Steve, welcome back to our program. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Ready to do some who's on first tonight. Yeah, we're going to do it. And uh, moreover, I like that uh, your new employer has said that I am permanently approved for doing uh, media with you, that you're okay to always come and do my show. That's kind of fun. Stamp of approval, man. I mean, they're making everybody jump through the hoops except for the Kyle Serafin show. Give me some examples of who's jumping through hoops. Uh, well, I did some uh, interviews with CNN, with uh, the Washington Examiner. Our friend John Solomon had actually uh, worked through the process, uh, and uh, and Jesse Waters for tonight. But I've got the blanket approval. Yes, yes, you do. It's almost like they know you and I are on the same team. <laughs> yes, I think the uh, the bureau could take take a cue from that. Well, that's funny because I always thought I was joining a team when I went into the FBI. What I realized is that I wasn't. I was just joining like the most dysfunctional family there is. And then uh, there's just small tribes within it that actually care about the things that you and I care about. Yeah, I was thinking today that the FBI is kind of like a trust fund kid that's living on on the billionaire grandfather's inheritance and Ooh. just on a boat doing cocaine. And <laughs> it's just going to explode you know, at some point he's going to hit rock bottom and, and just coasting on the fumes and, and they're about to run out. And possibly be like running aground in this uh, coke fueled yacht experience. <laughs> yes. You're you're down in Florida where people actually have cocaine and yachts. So I imagine that's more of a real thing for you. Like up in the mountains here in Arizona, I can't really fathom that, but so be it. Yeah, man, I go to the beach every day and I just uh, look at those those boats and figure like how many billions of dollars are being wasted in Colombian Pan Pam. <laughs> the Colombian marching powder. All right. Um, so you had a disclosure that you made, uh, I guess it was on Twitter and Truth. You, you shared something that was going on in Mobile, in the Mobile field office. Let's just take these things in order. Uh, let's bite that thing off and talk about why we think that's uh, I think it's going to segue nicely into a lot of the, the why the FBI is not a serious organization at this point and why it's doing cocaine on a yacht. So hit me up with what was going on in Mobile. I had a tip come to me that was uh, was about the Mobile uh, headquarter city, and the uh, the SAC there uh, basically put a, a notification out to everybody that they could use admin leave and not come to work 
uh, during the Mardi Gras celebration that was going to be going on there. And the justification for that was that the parade and the foot traffic was going to be an obstacle in order to access the 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 office. So the the instructions went out that you could you could stay home on paper. Uh, but now now who's the who's routes, the yeah who's the special agent in charge down there? Oh, uh, it's he's got one of these just very bland names. I can't remember it now. Okay, I think Phil pulled up my uh, my tweet, but uh, this wasn't he, Peoples. He's, he's his, somewhere else. No, Peoples is Birmingham. Got it. This guy, um, I looked at his background though, and it is heavy on the WMD. Okay. And counterterrorism. Okay, Paul so that Brown. yeah, that's Paul Brown. There you go. <laughs> that's that's about a, a, the most bureau name you can get. I had a guy going through my academy it's class. It's like a minion name, man. Yeah, it is a minion name. Uh, I had a guy going through my academy class whose last name was Storm. I always thought that was pretty epic. Being an Agent Storm is kind of strong. Being Agent Brown sounds like you're uh, like a bit character in a Fed movie. Agent Storm is way better than being Agent Friend. Yeah. Well, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I think Agent Friend gets a lot of doors <laughs> opened and a lot of tea offered. Uh, Agent Storm probably has like a lot of people throwing the deadbolt and hoping that he doesn't, you know, send the send the ram through the door, right? It, uh, it's the nature so, of the beast. So, so, uh, so SAC Brown uh, has a background heavy in counterterrorism and WMD. Mm -hmm. And certainly you would think that that would bias him to uh, beef up staffing or take some sort of preventative measures and to mitigate a mass casualty event that could ensue for a large Mardi Gras celebration that's going on. And obviously it's not a spontaneous celebration. That's something that's planned way in advance. Exactly. And, known. Um, well, and uh, they can definitely reroute parades and they can restrict areas because obviously the FBI is uh, no shrinking violet when it comes to prosecuting going into restricted areas. Oh God. Uh, so <laughs> So here's the thing, though, um, and, and people may not know this, but every time that there's a big event in any area, and I'm not sure which ones you guys would have had in your area, but when I was in uh, D.C., this was common all the time. We would do these big assessments. They would stand up what they call a command post, which is like a bunch of people sitting around doing analysis and they're watching social media for threats. And, you know, they're talking to the local PD and they're trying to you know send out resources. So everyone kind of knows what the FBI's investigative thing is. And they, and they like to quarterback. It doesn't matter if it's a Super Bowl or if it's a playoff game somewhere or if it's a, a parade. That happens every year or anything like that. Um, they they tend to put these sort of um, protections in place in order to go out there and try to mitigate risk to the public, which is not terrible. I think it's kind of a um, I think it's kind of a waste of resources a lot of times. I think it's like one of those uh, fluff jobs that the bureau does on the American people, talking about how because how many of those things result in anything whatsoever. But they're out there doing it. It's it's interesting to shut down a whole office. Yes. I mean, there's there's no excuse to, to tell people that they shouldn't come to work because it's so easily remedied. You can just tell the city, look, we're, we're the, the federal law enforcement presence here. You you have to you know, cordon off this block because our people have to be able to access our, our building. Um, and you're going to want us there because if something goes boom, uh, we need to be able to respond immediately as opposed to calling people from their from their homes. But the way I interpret this was is a uh, sort of a, a weak justification for the SAC in that office to give his people off to go celebrate Mardi Gras and have and probably. have king cake and whatever else they want to do down there. And and everybody who's been in the Gulf Coast knows that the Gulf Coast goes big on Mardi Gras. That's just a big tradition. Um, it's worth noting that even when they have presidential, you know, security um, perimeters pushed out um, just after January 6th in 2021 for the inauguration of Biden, 
uh, which I think was on like January 20th or 21st, they they had this huge cordon where they threw, you know, anti-scale fencing up over this incredible section of DC. And yet I could still get to the office because that was my job and we were feds and we had to go to work and it happens. It's like you still operate. You don't shut down because there's a parade in front of the building. That seems insane. Yes. Also, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh... let, let me tell you one other thing. Everybody likes to say when something goes boom and uh, I had two really, this is totally arbitrary and weird, but these are two things that I used to push back on when I was at DC. Um, I've been around dem demolition ranges a fair amount, both when I was in the military, I did demo and, uh, and learned how to use, you know, C4 and dynamite and all this other kind of stuff. And then the other thing I did is when I was uh, a medic, I would go down to Quantico and I would work with the counter IED units as a medic sometimes on the Charlie explosives range. And so I would always push back because most people have no experience with things going booms, you know, so-called boom. So they would go, you know, if something goes boom, we need to be there. And I would say kaboom. And then they would always kind of look at me like, what? And I was like, kaboom. <laughs> I was like, if you've been around explosives, it's kind of a kaboom. It's really not a boom. There's really a ka in front of it. You, <laughs> just, you remind just, me of the debate that I had with my eight-year-old where we were talking about what the song, the sound a dog actually makes. And I was like, who thought of Bow Wow as being a Yeah, it's not a Bow Wow. A dog? No, it's much more guttural, right? Yeah, I like to argue that. And then the other yeah, thing yes. I used to do too, and this is totally unrelated to anything at all, but it's really fun to do. You'll never get anybody to push back, or I rarely did. Um, they would say, there were three guys out there and they were riding on horses. And I would go horsies and then they would look at me like i was insane and then i would just go it's pronounced horsies and they would go right horsies and then they would move on i did this to probably a dozen people over a period of about a year and a half for some reason i just thought that was really funny i'm also not the kind of person that looks like he's going to say horsies but i've got two little girls and i just think it's really funny to have like a beard and a serious male face and to deadpan and correct grown-ups and tell them that the word is not horse, it's horsies. It's one of the weirdest things you can go do, but pick pick some word in your life and then just like, you know, my buddy would also do the same thing with uh, guitars. Anytime somebody would say guitar, he would always go, guitar. <laughs> I don't know why, but we like the way it sounds. So if you just like the way a word sounds better than another word, just, just substitute it, just screw with people. It's good. It gets people out of their little element. <laughs> You're over there. You're out of your element now with this. Sorry. It's just what it is. I'm on edge, man. It, it puts people off. In that conversation. Look, it's verbal jujitsu. And, um, and that's a funny little way to talk about how if you don't come in with a mind that's prepared to go do these kind of things, um, maybe you shouldn't talk to other people as a federal agent. There's a lot of people that I found that could not roll with it. It was just some funny stuff. I think street cops would take that regularly and they would just digest it and then move on. It doesn't throw them off. You can throw off somebody in the bureau by doing things like that because they're not used to people being, I don't know, just people. <laughs> they're used to people being feds. They're surrounded by like very straight laced, no sense of humor. And then guys like you and I come along and want to crack a joke and it, it throws them off. That's why when you used to talk about briefing up the preparation for an interview, when the guy used the phrase, your name came across my desk, I think that's perfect because he couldn't cope. That that just blew his mind when you pushed back on in a literal sense. Yeah. And he was obviously not going to be prepared for that if he came in, you know, and actually encountered somebody with your particular brand of humor, whereas you would have probably just high five the guy and, <laughs> and gotten out of business. That's right. Well, for those of you who haven't heard some of our previous shows, uh, Steve and I talk about how we bring new agents out of the academy and they use this phrase, your name came across my desk. That's why I'm standing in front of you right now. And I would always uh, screw with them. And I would just say, you know, is there a conveyor belt that just has names that run across? Like, what kind of desk are we talking about here? Do you have like a ticker, like the Wall Street ticker that just has names and you got to pick one off? And they would just be derailed, like immediately derailed. They would have no way to cope with that. Um, I don't know. I just think that human beings are 
are quirky animals. Our brains all work differently. And if you're not prepared to deal with that, then uh, maybe your job should not be trying to go out and talk to human beings. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, you brought to my attention that the Jacksonville FBI, folks, we, we're heavy on FBI because it's kind of like our ex-girlfriend, um, but an ex-girlfriend that's kind of psycho and is, you know, like burning crosses in our front yard and trying to mess with our wife. So th- this is why a lot of this stuff is relevant. The other thing is, is that you're all paying for it. Like you all are paying for the FBI and, uh, and we're paying for it too. And hopefully we don't pay for it like in a much darker way. So your, your issue with Jacksonville's Twitter feed, I think is funny. You want to just kind of run through that a little bit? Yeah, again, it's, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, obsessing over my ex that much. Uh, I actually have some insiders that direct my attention to it mm-hmm. quite a bit. And, and I noticed this trend every single day that they put a tweet out about this upcoming diversity hiring event that they're going to be hosting. And, and they're just regaling anybody who's willing to read about all the benefits of becoming a part of the, the FBI as a special agent. And they talk about, you know, how there's, there's no turnover, which I was quick to point out that the, the mafia doesn't have a lot of turnover either. Uh, which is one of the many things that it has organized crime has in common with the FBI. Yeah. Unless you get a pair uh, of concrete and, and, boots like you and I got. Exactly. Um, but it just to focus on, we have to have diversity training, which is actually consistent with uh, what our friend Jen Moore told uh, one of the divisions out there in a broad meeting about the fit test standard, not being met by some minority candidates for hiring. And then they, uh, we're reaching back out to them to let them know that the standards had been lowered for, for them to test because they're really pushing on minority hiring is going to be the priority as opposed to qualified hiring, which you would think would be paramount. Well, and I think that was historically the case. And I think the thing is, is it's so sad when you start changing standards in order to meet a minority quotient. I think there are plenty of qualified people uh, that look any number of ways. And uh, some of my closest buddies don't look anything like me physically they're usually like a lot more muscular and some of them have darker skin. So what None of that matters to me? It's like, uh, I know that if I have to go lift a car off somebody, I'm going to probably be calling up my buddy, Josh, because he's got those arms that looks like he could probably lift a car up or my buddy, Scott, who I've actually seen deadlift a car just because he's a sick human being that does that sort of thing. And you know, what does it matter, uh, to meet these, these qualifications, but our federal government has been incentivized and this administration is, is following on Obama's sort of thing to, to really push that diversity, equity, inclusion agenda. And uh, it, it seems very antithetical to the meritocracy that we all kind of believe in in this country, or at least we thought we believed in. I grew up with it. It made sense you could do anything you wanted. Maybe you can't do everything you wanted because you're not a billionaire, but you at least have some potential to make some serious mobility happen. And I don't know, lowering standards seems like the opposite of what people would want. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, I, I think you just have to go to, to the most extreme example possible. You know, if you're, if you're home and you, know, you hear a crash downstairs, uh, and you call nine one one. Do you want a four foot eleven, hundred and three pound uh, female police officer showing up who's just out of the academy, or do you want somebody who looks like Michael Clark Duncan to show up to handle that situation? That's right. I think that you just have to be honest with yourself about it. And there's Michael you know, Clark Duncan. The same thing for fire department. He's the guy from the Green Mile, right? Yeah, d- uh, duly departed. Yeah, but a monster. I love that guy's voice too. Whenever he yes. did the uh, whatever, whenever oh, yeah. he did interactions, I can't remember what it was. Maybe the whole nine yards when he was buddies with uh, with Bruce Willis in that movie. That was my favorite. I I like the way that I, Bruce Willis I liked and him, him talk. Talladega Nights. Yeah, <laughs> I liked him in Talladega. Nights. Don't put the evil. 
Don't put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby. That's it. All right. Um, and so speaking of uh, the not serious nature of the Bureau and the, and, the, and the standards dropping, so this woman, Jennifer Moore, this is the woman who's in charge of all human resources and security and training. It's a problem. Uh, if, if those of you are following us on Truth and Twitter, you can go and check this out. I'll retweet it again today. This is the uh, the link that I put up. So we we posted. You and I are in a document disclosure mode right now. We are in dumping on the Bureau. Um, I had a tweet yesterday of, of the... Uh, the Seraphin friend task force that's just like receiving data dumps. And it's just a chick who's like sleeping on a sofa and someone throws like a bag of hot dogs on her face. Um, which, which by the way, one of my friends uh, sent me that years ago, he's an FBI agent and, uh, he's in the South. I won't get more specific. Um, but my buddy who is a almost pro baseball player, he's got like long hair and a big beard. He's a really good looking dude. He's a super athlete. Like he's super fit. And he married this, uh, he married this gal who is, um, she was a national champions gymnast. So the two of them are just disgusting because uh, their their kid was like four years old and like knocking things off the T-ball, like, you know, clearing the neighbor's fence right away, you know, sprinting around the bases and then doing his own little celebration. And he's four. The dude's like barely speaking full sentences and just crushing it. But uh, and anyway, he, he sent me that. And I said, how did you find that that GIF? Like, where did that come from? And he said, I just searched meat rain which is a really troubling idea that meat rain would generate a woman getting sausages thrown on her, but so be it. So, uh, you know, these data dumps, I'm going <laughs> to try and claw myself out. It's Friday. So like I'm, I'm chasing squirrels, but, um, this, these data dumps are, I think important for people to be able to see the inner workings of the bureau and just s- small snapshots, but we're trying to give a big, big picture. So in this case, uh, I, I went out and published this thing with, uh, Tracy beans. We put out the, the scribed, you know, all of these uh, inter- emails that this woman sent over a period of like 18 months. And this is, like I said, our buddy Jennifer Moore, uh, drunk Jenny, as Phil affectionately refers to her. And, uh, you know, she's got she's got all these ridiculous, just, I don't know, like drunken mom blog type emails to like a thousand FBI employees. And so I'm going to read a little bit of one of them. And I encourage you to go check them out and just see what it is that your dollars are paying for. This woman makes like $212,000 a year as a senior executive in the FBI. She's one step away from the top paycheck you can get. And so here's what it says. This is, first of all, she called them all captain's logs, which is em- embarrassing on sem- several levels because, I don't know, Star Trek nerdiness. Um, she's not the captain of anything. Uh, most people de- dealt with her very, very infrequently. So this is the subject. Captain's log, quarantine day, 395. So that just gives you an idea of how many of these I read. And I read every single one of these every single week the whole time they came in. It says, all, what a wonderful weekend of great weather. Whether you observe Easter, Passover, another holiday, or no holiday at all. Oh man, that's really inclusive. I hope it was a great week and a wonderful weekend. I missed the captain's log last week. I was traveling with my daughter. Here it comes, family disclosures. So she could cheer on her teammates in a competition in Ocean City, and I failed to get a guest writer. Eventually, the week got away from me, and here we are. We are now a paragraph in, and she hasn't said anything. So this log will be a little bit longer than usual, and I'll try to catch it for two weeks. My daughter, here it goes. My daughter had her ACL and meniscus surgery this week. Like, I don't even know who her daughter is, but uh, apparently she's a cheerleader with uh, injuries. Um, so I'll be playing nurse mom. I'm not a very good nurse. I'm either too much or not enough on the attention scale. And once again, I was not mom of the year. And I filmed Kendall as the anesthesia wore off on her surgery. Oh my goodness. These are funny videos. Like not one thing here has to do with the FBI. It goes on for like another full paragraph or two. Uh, including some of her awful jokes, which are really terrible. Uh, what did the TV do at the beach? Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. She's literally typing this out. Channel surf. It came from a popsicle stick. What can I say? These are the types of people, not serious people, that are running 
this group, which is why you get Mardi Gras off and why uh, diversity and inclusion events are the primary focus uh, in, in an FBI field office when they should be just going after like, I don't know, child sex predators. You had an interesting thing about them the other day. You said there was some sort of uh, somebody tweeted something out about I think it was the FBI was pushing it out about something and you had a um, a commentary on it because I know that you're a little bit raw about being taken off doing real work. The, uh, the sex extortation uh, issue that they're now it's become an awareness campaign. What is Those that by the way? Originally coming to our, uh, they're just saying be aware that you could be sending your your fourteen or fifteen year old boy might be getting manipulated into sending, you know, pictures of his crotch to who he thinks is a girl who's interested in him. Meanwhile, he's going to get blackmailed, right? Uh, and 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 just be vulnerable to it. So those were coming in. Oh, quite a bit right before I got moved over into national security. And the, the narrative I got was this is kind of like Nigerian prince email scams. They're coming from the Ivory Coast. We can't really open a case on it. And if we do, it's just we can't really impact it. So just kind of tell them that this is a life lesson. We'll refer it to the local law enforcement. Yeah. And then there were some. What would some we do about that, profile. though? Like, is there is there anything that we would be able to do that you can imagine? Like what the tool set um what sort of tool set we would have to be able to do that. And I'm going to tell a personal story about that in a second here. Uh, you could open an investigation and actually nut up and go to the Ivory Coast and extradite somebody. Okay. Um, and that, I mean, that, that's eventually what they had to do with the Nigerian princes, right? I mean, you right. just have to, somebody has to be willing to do that. Uh, and, and it's it's a lot of work. That's the thing. Resource it. It's a lot of work. Yes. With a minimal payoff, probably. Yeah, I mean, in, in you would it would take years, and then you'd probably get somebody who was in, at some sort of giant facility you know, where there's they're doing it by the hundreds of people. But that's you know that's a legitimate righteous thing that the FBI should be doing. Yes, if, if it has a budget of eleven billion dollars, I think they could probably find some loose change to to fund that effort. Maybe take the eighty people that are monitoring. Kids. Yeah, take the eighty people monitoring social media and pull them off and put them onto the, uh, the now child exploitation, sex trafficking, uh, you know, or what is it, um, photo trafficking sort of rings and extortion that's happening in uh, in Africa and try and stop it. That seems reasonable. Yeah, that or just the people that are going to the, uh, the diversity hiring seminars or, or events. Whoever's Maybe running the event. The day. <laughs> they should just be pursuing real crime. Yeah. Um, and then there were some some uh, young men that actually committed suicide. And yes. that gained some media attention, which always gets you know things moving forward. But apparently it's not moved forward enough that they're at least openly saying that they're addressing the problem beyond be aware, be aware. Which is the same thing as they say, like, you know, make sure you lock your, your car door. Right. Thieves or, can knock out your windows and take your stuff if it's not underneath your jacket on the floorboards. So here's a here's a quick personal story. Um, I had a neighbor actually come to me with this exact thing. I didn't realize what the what the tweet that you were mentioning was about. And so now I have a better grasp on it. So I appreciate that. Um, so sextortion is the term that the Bureau uses. Is that correct? Sextortion? Yeah. And yep. You know, for the for the listeners out there that are not familiar with this, if you don't have young children, or if you have children that are under the age of um, maybe having a cell phone and going out in the world, this is this is the real thing. Um, essentially, some you know uh, African group, or there may be some that are domestically, but I've also seen some that seem like they might have been in the Middle East. What they're doing is they're preying on the social media presence and the existence and, and sort of the phone contact that they can make with a younger person who has a less developed cerebral cortex and cannot understand the consequences of. And then they'll send some, you know, hot girl pictures and then, you know, send me a picture of your junk. 
And so when a young man does that, and it could be a young girl too, but it's generally speaking, I think young men are the ones that are the most ashamed of this. They, um, they send out this, this picture. Now that's child pornography. If it's trafficked, um, under our laws, correct? Yes. So, and I knew guys enticing somebody to create. Okay. So you, so we have an actual federal crime in the United States that would cover this. And yes. when they go and do that, they send it off to this person. Then the person, you know, sends a picture back or says, ha ha, you know, like I'm actually a dude and I actually am in whatever, and I'm going to make you really famous. I'm going to post this all over your school's website. I'm going to put it all over your Facebook groups. I'm going to basically expose you, you know, your junk to somebody and go get your parents' credit card and go buy me some Amazon gift cards and send those numbers over. You know, I, I need $500. I'm going to come after you or I'm going to ruin your life. And then you know, this happened to a neighbor of mine. I don't want to get too specific, but essentially this happened. And, and uh, the neighbor came to me and was like, look, w- what is our liability here? What's our, what's our exposure? And I said, you basically do nothing. That's your only option because these guys are only in it to use shame and shame is very powerful and it will work and it'll get money out of people. And they're a numbers game. So the minute that you are no longer a viable source of an income, they're going to drop it. So that's the only thing you can do. And are you taking a little bit of a risk that they might actually carry out on it? Yes, but their odds of carrying out on it is much lower. And that actually makes it a much bigger federal problem for them that we might actually get involved with it. So you just ignore them. So that's the advice. First of all, be aware of what your kids are doing online. That's a that's a given. But uh, be aware of what they're doing on their phone trafficking too. And then if this were to happen, and it's a real possibility, like I said, I've met people, I know people that are close to me in my life that have had that happen to them. You have to be realistic about what your risk reward is and be able to just ignore them in the same way that a uh, it's very similar to virtual kidnapping did you ever do any of those on the res the virtual kidnap uh now you'd have to explain the vir- so, know, so we had a couple of these virtual. so essentially what would happen is somebody would be gone they would be either out of town or they would have left unexpectedly and some some group is aware of that they're either tracking cell phone movements they're buying data or something like that but they know that this person is not around sometimes the person's in on it and then the family member is called and they're, they're told, you know, we have this person, you know, we represent a cartel. They'll show a picture of like somebody with their hands cut off or something crazy. And they'll say, unless you send us, you know, $800, then we're going to do the same thing to your loved one. And then so immediately the person calls up the loved one, but the loved one's out of cell phone contact. They're either somewhere where they can't be found or they're actually in on it. And then, um, and then the family member will panic and call the FBI. And then it's like, you know. I got a picture of somebody's hands cut off and I have to send them $800 like right now or they're going to kill my loved one. It's like, where's your loved one at? And they're like, I don't know. And half the time they're like down at a park on the res that just has no uh, cell phone signal or they're involved in it. And so virtual kidnapping is the same thing. It's a threat that doesn't actually have any follow through, but it scares the hell out of the people that are getting those messages. Yeah, I've dealt with that with elderly. Mm -hmm. They they say your granddaughter, she's in jail right now and I'm an attorney. You have to send me a retainer. And a lot of these, these older folks just, send the money and they're you know, obviously on a fixed income. It's pretty devastating to them. Right. Uh, but I, I will say another issue to that sex extortion or sex extortion uh, is that I had, without getting too specific, uh, an individual at one of the military academies. Mm-hmm. So pretty 18 years old, technically it was child pornography, uh, but that leaves the, uh, you know, that, that could be an insider threat issue. Right, where you're going to actually have them explore. They now they think that they uh, they owe this person something, and then as that person matures in their military career or has access to certain information or physical security mechanisms, they could be compromised. Yes, yes, okay. exactly. So, it's just a thing that we got to. It is good that there's an awareness campaign. Um, I just uh, you know I'm hoping that they may be going to go after it with more gusto than that. 
Yeah, there's real damage that gets done. And as you mentioned, a couple of suicides, um, really awful to think that somebody thinks that there's no other outlet. Um, so this is just a good awareness campaign. It's going to it's gonna segue into our final our final uh, discussion about single parent households, I think, too. Um, I want to briefly cover uh, the Chicago Ashes story. You put a tweet out. I went and did some additional digging. One of my um, one of my friends in Chicago, actually a couple of them reached out to me. Um, some of them have access to a little bit more information, including the fact that the essentially what happened was the the Chicago field office refused to allow a chaplain who has been doing this for as long as 30 years from what I can tell. Like I talked to some people that have been in that office for a very long time and the chaplain is used to distributing ashes on Ash Wednesday. You're, um, you got an email about it that somebody forwarded over to you. That's the nice thing about us having two different source networks, essentially. Um, what, what was the email? What was the gist of the email that you got? And I'll try to add more if there's more to it. It was a, pretty quick, like one or two sentences where they said they wouldn't be uh, spreading ashes for Ash Wednesday, but that then explained to them how they could go about using leave properly uh, to go participate in that if they wanted to. And my source told me and explained that that's a traditional thing that always happens in Chicago office. Uh, so people were concerned actually for the priest who typically comes in mm -hmm. and reached out to him directly. You know, are you sick? Are you hurt? And he said that uh, the FBI told him not to come in for legal reasons. Right. And there was something to the effect of you can celebrate your religion on your own time, right? Yes. Exactly. So I want to contrast that with uh, taking the day off because there's a parade in front of the building. And when you have people that are willing to show up to work, which they are, and you can do the, you, I mean, you're a uh, former now, but still an investigator, but a, an investigative mind. How many Catholics do you think are just based on the demographics that go on in Chicago, what do you think the Catholic percentage is of the uh, law enforcement community in that area, including the FBI? Um, I, I would say it's probably outstrips the uh, the American uh, average. I think you know if if if, if it's seventy million is probably what like fifteen to twenty percent. It's mm -hmm. probably at least a quarter, if not a third, or, or beyond that. Yep. In Chicago. I think you're correct from the estimates I, I talked to folks there. And so what we're talking about is that uh, of those people that practice, a fair number of them would actually have to take time away, commute in Chicago, either on foot, which may not be an option. I'm not exactly sure how close the, the churches are that they go to, but they'd have to go to a church. They'd have to go to a service. And so you're going to have this mass exodus of maybe a third of your workforce um, rolling out to go do a religious observance, which they are entitled to do under, under our federal laws, or... You do the thing you've been doing for 30 years, which is that you allow a chaplain, which the FBI does have a chaplain program um, for multiple faiths, and they can be affiliated with the uh, the individual, the priest that was uh, in question is a Chicago PD chaplain who is now retired and still comes to the FBI's office, but has been doing this for three decades. It's a thing that he's been doing, hence their concern that he might be sick or unwell because he's you know a little bit elderly at this point. Um, but you, know, you could bring him in and for 15 minutes, you can have people just go down in shifts and go have the the short service in the ashes and then come back up and then uh, they've you know fulfilled their obligations as Catholics yet another anti-catholic position I think that's very interesting it's a, it's an interesting doorway into Christianity you know in a larger scale yeah especially well, at least in my experience I know I, I didn't spend very much time in the Jacksonville headquarter uh city office but in the Omaha one where I was for seven years they actually had office space for the chaplain and he would send out a email uh, to the entire division saying the chaplain is in mm -hmm. and it was just an open invitation if you wanted to come and and see him or talk to him for whatever and there was never a question or or oh, you're using your time it was just uh, uh available to the workforce 
So it would seem consistent you know, with uh, allowing the priest to come in and use a space. They probably already have it predetermined. He probably has an office space. I would think Chicago has that. I would think so too. It. And that's probably a better use of taxpayer dollars and time and space in a very um, foundational way, kind of like uh, the EAP program, the employee assistance program, where it's really built into the budget. It's built into the, uh, it's kind of baked into the cake as opposed to like wellness rooms where there's a massage chair and some other nonsense that we were talking about uh, earlier in the week. I mean, you, I, I know they have chaplains at Quantico and it's a resource that a lot of people use. It's pretty common both in military and law enforcement because it can be a stressful job, but I don't think massage chairs is the answer. I think it's human beings. That's kind of always the way it's gone, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I did renewed our vows at Quantico after graduation. Oh, that's we were cool. Very big on this is a new chapter of our lives. And, and we just had our first son right before I went to Quantico. So it was just kind of everything was perfect. We were going to be moving, new job, new role in life and kind of felt that, that was a good appropriate thing to do uh, and there's a nice little chapel off in the, the main area and uh my, my parents were there my sister was there and, and we renewed our vows pretty quickly and it was it was nice that is neat um and there's a neat little facility to be able to do that the chapel there seems like it would be pretty cozy um i'm going to switch gears on you i want to talk about things that are not good Let's talk about the OPR files and how it came about that uh, john solomon decided to publish them because you've been putting them out slowly on kind of a trickle, what made you decide to put them all out and tell people what they are just so they understand if they haven't been following this for a while? So briefly, uh, I took the last five years of OPR quarterlies uh, as a rubric when I was trying to assess what kind of uh, punishment would be acceptable when my lawyer asked me to get you know, him guidance on the, the employee disciplinary processes. And so I thought that would be a good resource. It's unclassified, even though it's housed in a classified system. Uh, so I had those at my in my fingertips, and then and the and the OPR quarterlies, those are a like a crime and punishment. This is the thing that an infraction, and then this was the actual punishment that was received. It's our version of like internal affairs. So you know, if you're not familiar with what we've been yes. doing over here, if you're new to our show, which we do appreciate you listening, um, you know, Steve's been out there basically exposing how the FBI treats its own and how different our experience has been and other whistleblowers like us. So, all right, continue on. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Inspection division does it. Uh, they issue it every quarter. And it was always just like prime time email. Everybody had to sit and read the OPR quarterlies because it's the low lights. These, some of them are pretty embarrassing. And uh, and you just want to see how, what kind of tomfoolery and zany hijinks goes on uh, within the FBI. Some of it's really awful uh, and, too, like uh, beating children. Some and, of it is. Yeah. I mean, it's really dark yes, stuff. And, you, mm -hmm. and I mean, and, and you, it'll it'll just range from you know having sex in a bureau vehicle to potentially spousal abuse or sexual harassment a lot of a lot of alcohol related uh and i was putting that out because i think that the uh, the fbi needs to be held to account they're civil servants it's anonymous so nobody particularly was was called out by name and uh, you know, we've, we've talked about it before. You're not a secret agent in the FBI. Right. You have credentials um, and you're supposed to present them upon request. So the, these sort of things need to be fleshed out for the public to see and then really hold you know, the FBI to its standard. It's supposed to be you know, a little higher standard of folks. And I, uh, I, I was in contact with, with John and uh, then realized that the, 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 their Twitter is kind of 
pushing down on the spigot for me. I can't seem to, to, to gain any followership and he's got close to a million and he's a great journalist. Yes. And, uh, and I knew he would do a great job with it. And he did, he, he put out multiple pieces and has brought in other sources that he has who were retired agents that, that, uh, you know, had could speak to years prior than the last five years and, and see if there's any sort of trends. So I was, I was very pleased with the, the work that John did. So we'll put the link down in the in the the show description, folks. If you want to click on these, it's uh, justthenews.com is John Solomon's website. He does a great job there. He has a, a show on Real America's Voice where they've talked about this now in interview format. But the link will show you that there are, what, maybe 20 or more, something like that, 20-ish uh, PDFs that are each individual quarter's lowlights, as Steve uh, accurately stated. And so what you can do is you can go through and you can read them yourself and what you'll find is an interesting discrepancy. It's like uh, lost a weapon, a couple days on the bricks, um, you know, lied about something stupid, fired, uh, punched out your three-year-old, and then coached him how to talk to CPS, aggravated battery and assault, uh, 60 days, no pay, and then you're back on the job. These are pretty incredible. Another ones you'll find like stealing, but it's their fourth time. So now they're going to get fired, but they got, they had this happen three or four times before and they're still on the payroll. Uh, and these are people that are, that are compromised in a national security sense. They really have no excuse for the behavior. We all sign up with the same idea. We all go through a polygraph. We all know we're going to get investigated. Everybody's a human being. So I'm sure we can have some forgiveness, but you know, an agency like this should not be keeping people around that are, you know, deciding to drive drunk in their car. And a lot of times they are, they're like, it's like they drove drunk and they'll be like, well, in mitigation, they were really stressed out. Um, how many of you think that you yes. would get any leniency at your job if you decided to go take your company car and drive around and get pulled over drunk? You know, the liabilities for a corporation are ex extreme and the FBI doesn't even have insurance. You want to tell people how, how the FBI uh, handles car accidents? Have you had to do any of these investigations? Uh, yes. Well, I, I had them done for me. Somebody uh, whacked into my, my vehicle in the parking lot. So another agent in my office had to do it. Self-insured. Self-insured. Uh, they do the accident report. And it's, it's funny because I did accident report as a police officer and the FBI's you know, way to do it is way less efficient and, and, and better in, in any way than a local police department. It's you really dumb far better off having a, a patrol officer come and handle your accident. Yeah. 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 I mean, I actually had to stay, I had to uh, get a guy, they didn't get a statement on scene. We didn't send somebody out at the moment. And so I actually had to track down this dude at one point who was, he was a nuclear engineer on the, uh, on the Naval facility um, in the Navy shipyard. And uh, I think that's what it's called. And I couldn't get the guy to pick up the phone. And then my training agent called at one point and like yelled at him in like broken English Chinese which I know you love my Lou Lou impression, but uh, so Lou called up and he was like, this is the FBI, I'm the special agent Lou, and you had to call him back about the Buka. And you're like, oh my God, Lou. And he's like, now nah, he call you back. And I'm like, dude, that never, that guy's never gonna call me back. That number is now blocked. Like I can't call him. So we ended up getting NCIS involved. This is how stupid it is. I had to call a liaison contact and call in a favor with NCIS, get uh, drive onto the base, find out where the heck the guy worked, which the NCIS agent gave me his plates and all of his info. And then I went and I parked and blocked him in so I could get like a three minute interview. And, uh, and it was the weirdest interview I've done. It was like two dudes. My buddy Hunter was next to me. Hunter's like 240 pounds and he's like a big beefcake. We both had like really dark sunglasses on cause we were deciding cause the guy was a jerk. And, uh, we go and we talk to him and we're talking about where he actually hit on this truck. He had like an F-150 truck and we're walking around the truck and then you never, uh, interview somebody and they just tell you something that is like, 
that feels like there's another investigation that needs to come out of this this conversation that didn't start that way. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody just says something and you're like, yes. dude, what? Uh, so he goes, wow. he's like, look, I'm telling me that definitely it's not in the trunk. Definitely don't look in the trunk. Right. It was that kind of a thing. He was like, yeah, so, uh, you know, this is the damage from the car and this is where I hit it. It was on the left side, the driver's side. And then, uh, we're walking around and he was like, oh, don't even worry about that. Like that scratch. Like that's just like where I, I hit a kid on a bicycle. And I was like, yes. I was like, what was that? And he was like, oh, I was just driving. This kid was on his bicycle and I like scraped his bicycle thing. And then he like fell over. And I was like, I cannot believe you're just. Dude, that is a deep gouge. It was a really deep gouge. And it was probably like six or seven feet of some poor kid's handlebars had just gone like, you know, raggedly around the the side of the passenger side of his vehicle, which he ran some kid off the road. And I'm I'm like, I'm with bloodstains too. Yeah, I'm a fed. I have no ability to deal with this sort of thing, but it didn't look good. And I could just like visualize what those handlebars were doing as it was like making a six inch travel north and south on the on the thing as the guy drove past him and ran the kid off. And I'm thinking, I can't believe that these people are that weird. It, it solidified that our agent was probably in the right when she told me she was, you know, 50, 50. She told me she was like, I was, I was right, but you know, and she's kind of a funny chick. Cause she was a, uh, she was in the army and she was a helicopter pilot. And she was like, you know, female driver, but like, I'm pretty sure I was correct. I, I didn't do anything wrong. And I was like, at least she's self-aware. I was like, I don't want that on your official statement. I think I was right. But also yeah. female driver is probably not the best thing to have in your official bureau accident report. So I gave her the benefit of the doubt. But yeah, once you go out there and you see the dude has like run a kid off the road. And I was like, how old was this kid? And he's like, I don't know, like 10 or 12. And I'm like, this is, did you stop? And he was like, no. It's like, you're not a good person. You're not a good person at all. And you, you were really hard to track down. And uh, he was so strange. But anyway, this is the worst and least efficient way of getting any accident report done, which is a pretty good example of why the Bureau is bad at doing a lot of really mundane tasks. It's crazy that they actually do anything well, and they do some things well, but not things that you would expect. That would be really easy. Like someone ran into our car. We have thousands of cars, tens of thousands. You'd think that there'd be a good system. It's like, I said this one time, I think I told this to Phil. Every time something would happen in the Bureau that was like administrative, and this is one of those things like car accident, for some reason, everybody acted like it was the first time that it's ever been done. Exactly. Did you ever have that? Like, it doesn't it, matter what it was. how I felt. You're like, has no matter. one ever done this before? I just want to get paid back for something that I had an expense for my case out of my pocket, incidental. Can can we get reimbursed? And they'd be like, I, I know I'm not the first. Yes. I know and I'm not the first. I was the first new agent in my office. I'm pretty sure because I showed up in my office and no one knew what to do. There was like no format. They're like, oh man, you're new here? Like, ah. Uh, it's like you get a new person every week and you reinvent it every week. That's how inefficient the government is on so many levels. <laughs> it's terrible. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, my vehicle to get the dent, it was just a dent in the back. No one's ever had a dent before. Weeks. Yeah. Weeks. We had to get, we had to put out bids and then I had to find an auto uh, body shop to do the work. And then that took weeks. And then I had to go and get paper uh, receipts. And I mean, it was Weeks and weeks and weeks. And yeah. uh, for something that happens that the, probably every week, everywhere in the bureau. Correct. Yeah. No, no question. I mean, but it was even like basic things like paying a source. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have to pay a source at often. So the, the first time I did it, I was like, hey, what do I do? And man, it was a month. Yeah. Like heads just exploding. Like, oh, you're going to do this thing that everybody does every week, but we don't know how to do it. Um, I think that's a nice sort mm -hmm. of segue into the national security implications of releasing J6 videos. I'll tell you why. These administration problems, which exist because we don't have good administrators, um, are high-level problems that should be solved by people who have been in the field 
and then move on into management and then know that there's problems and then just be like, look, my big deal is I'm going to fix auto accidents. It's super easy. I'm going to be you know, in charge of some administrative thing. I'm just going to make one mark on the bureau because I was a guy who drove a car and it was dumb. And so I'm going to fix that. And they could do that in 18 months. They can't do much, but they could do that. And they don't. And have a positive impact, really. Yeah, one positive impact. Like if you went out and fixed the auto accident situation for FBI agents, like so we didn't have that, so we could go after bad guys better, then that'd be a huge deal. I actually backed into my own car. This is really dumb. I backed into my own car because our windows on SOG were so tinted. And I'd been out for, I don't know, like 13 or 14 hours of just like mobile surveillance. I was exhausted and it was all fogged up. And it was like, you know, the, it was a, a Northern Virginia, like swampy you know, mist coming off. Every, I couldn't see anything out of the mirrors. I was looking backwards and I barely scraped my minivan. And I was like, we got to fix the minivan. So I go and I tell the boss, I'm like, look, I backed into my vehicle. It's my fault. I did it in my, in my work vehicle. I couldn't see anything. I had the windows down. Like we have some of our lights are like dim. So you don't see sideways. So you just like, it's easier to keep your car low vis, uh, lower signature. So sure enough, I tell him and he was like, well, you backed into it. It's your fault. And I was like, no, 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 no. It's the same as if I backed into any other car. It just happens that we know who owns it and that person is my wife. We have to fix it. <laughs> the bureau is responsible for my actions. I don't. I didn't need to do that. I didn't want to do that. By the way, it never got fixed. That was in like 2019. Yeah. Um, they never fixed it. I got bids. I got the whole thing. It never got approved. It was like a you know $900 damage I did to myself. So I ate it and I deal with it. It's frustrating, but that's how stupid it is. And agents have to deal with this. So my point is, is that these FBI administrators that they love to trot out and everybody's got an assistant director of something or some, you know, former deputy assistant director that that's their like senior FBI official. And yeah, they are senior FBI officials, but they come out. And my favorite one is this guy, Frank uh, Fuglisi, I think his name is. I can't pronounce it. I call him Frankie Figs. Um, I know Dan Bongino and anybody who's listening to a show probably also listens to Dan. Like Dan hates this guy. I despise him. He looks like he's had nothing but Botox. His face is as smooth as your face, but he's had like 25 more crappy years and his neck looks like loose, but then they tightened it back somewhere. He looks like a clown. Like he is just a despicable human being. And he went out there and referred to you and I at one point as self-styled whistleblowers. And I'm like, we're not self-styled. It's a freaking federal law, dude. Like it's really easy. Like all you got to go is read the law and see what we're about. And Frankie Figs went on uh, MSNBC with Joy Reid and said he was concerned about the January 6th footage being released because it was going to cause security concerns. And then our, our little uh, caveat to that is NFI, no further information. He didn't specify what those concerns are. What sort of security concerns do you have about giving up, uh, giving the public access to footage from surveillance cameras? Any at all whatsoever? Uh, no, because it's public facility. <laughs> like, like, what is this guy talking about? How does this even happen? How do you get this guy out there to say this thing? I know that's the that's the leftist talking point right now. Yeah, I think they're they're gonna say that, well, our evacuation protocols will be exposed. And um be, and, and, and yeah, exactly. So they, they know that you got them out of the building. They don't the, the cameras don't follow where you took them. Right. And but who cares if they do like, know where are, they were because all of them were live streaming it anyway. And these we're talking about an area and a possible like security risk of a building that has its own police force. Like the building has the Capitol Police. It's one building. It's one little set of grounds. They literally have an entire complex. Uh, they have a full police force that handles just that little complex. Uh, that's been beefed up tremendously right. in the last couple of years, funding wise and manpower wise. It's I mean it's pretty formidable force. It's larger than than most uh, you know smaller town, most smaller city uh, police forces. 
probably the same. Yeah, probably per capita, far more police officers on the Capitol grounds than you would find in almost any small town America with a similar size um, number of people on, on a daily basis. And mutual aid at their beck and call from Metro PD and from a, a whole host of federal law enforcement agencies with tactical and all that. So they're right. They're loaded. Right. So the, so I think this is one of those straw man things. They sit, throw it up there and well, they're not, it's not even a straw man, I guess. It's just a, it's just a false argument. It's like, um, I got into a discussion on Twitter with this guy who is a opinion writer. I think his name's Jar Greg Sargent's. Um, I've never read his stuff. I don't read the WAPO anymore, but what I do know is that he went out there and said, it's a slimy little scam you're running because you know there's legitimate security concerns. And I just responded to him and I said, hey, um, I'm interested in your perspective. Maybe tell me what those security concerns are and then maybe tell me your background in physical security so you can give me kind of like your bona fides so I know what you mean is a value. Because I've done physical security and I know you have too. It's one of those like sort of side yeah. things for SWAT, whether you're holding a perimeter um, when you're in the military, especially in the, in the job that I used to train for, you know, the possibility of going in like doing an evacuation of a pilot uh, behind enemy lines, 360 security, like this is your principle. This is your job. Your job is to go do protection, asset protection of a human being. And I don't care. Like ISR is up in the air. That's going to be your information surveillance reconnaissance type birds. Like they're watching the enemy's watching. Like everybody's watching. Your job is to make sure that nobody comes into the bubble of protection. And that's what all physical security is going to be. So who cares if there's a camera angle that they know exists now? Like, what does that, what does that help? Like, I just don't get it. I mean, I, I would think if you're walking through the the capital, you have to assume at all angles you're under surveillance. It's got to be more surveilled than Las Vegas. Right? It, I mean, I don't know that it is. Vegas is actually probably better because it's private industry. So we have to assume that the uh, that the, sure. the the goal of the capital complex is to surveil all things. And then the failure is because it's government. It's obviously going to be robust. But, but yeah, yeah it's like that there's Ocean's no Eleven style, like the camera pans over here and then you have the eight second window where you could run to this beam. Like that doesn't exist. Right. That's, That's not happening. Hollywood. Well, yeah, that only happens if you're doing that sort of, uh, Hollywood imagination. But I think that's kind of tells us where people in this country have gone that are, that are so unhinged about the so-called insurrection, which you and I would refer to as a riot only because we've seen what riots look like and insurrections usually involve guns and they happen in banana republics <laughs> they usually try to take out the government instead of like running in and putting a guy in a viking helmet sitting into nancy pelosi's chair but w what do i know yeah i guess that's that must be on the disappearing ink side of the constitution if you mm. wear a viking hat and sit down like th then you're the new leader you're the new leader yeah you are ordained uh this it's like part of the divine right of kings transfer if you actually have the if you sneak in you've got that going on um so true so weird can we transfer and pivot over to other unserious people which is this lady who was the four person actually trump tweeted out he, he put in quotes four person which i think is really funny because we've always had foreman i guess you could have a four woman i don't really get into the titles of it four person is quite funny um, but trump was upset about it just for background how many grand juries have you participated in you think um well, grand jury is 18 months, so I saw the same people over and over again every Sorry, month. how Sorry, how many grand juries have you testified, or how many times have you testified in front of grand jury? How many times have you experienced like that process? Between one and 200 times. Okay. And you've gotten indictments. You've gone out there, as we've talked about previously. Um, tell people what the process looks like, and then we're going to talk about how many times those people have gone in front of the camera after you went and testified. So it's, you know, it's sort of a secret 
proceeding. You go in, it's not adversarial. There's no defendant. There's no defense attorney. There's no judge. It's just you sit down and the prosecutor essentially has you walk through uh, the bare bones of your case. You don't have to give everything. You just have to give enough for the, the jury to hear to decide if they want to issue an indictment, a true bill, or uh, or they want to no true bill the uh, the the case, in, in which case you can come back with more evidence later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the room is not like the 12 jurors that you see at, at regular criminal court uh, or the nine that you see in a civil court. It's uh, it, it have to have a quorum. They have to have the majority of people there. But I believe it can be up to 30 in the federal system if it's fully maxed out. And they don't need and that many. They need like 18 to, to be able to call it or something. Correct. Um, yeah. And, 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 and depending where you are, like in Nebraska, they met once a week. And depending, they didn't have a lot of cases. They would just be there for the day because U.S. Attorney's Office would be like, "Hey, we're presenting X amount of cases. We can get it done in Monday, uh, and then you're done. You come back next month." Yep. And they're impaneled for a year and a half. They have to be available. So they're available for 18 months. Uh, my experience with going in front of grand juries has always been like kind of like a little lecture hall type thing, or like a small classroom where they're kind of tiered and people can all see you from yes. different angles. And I think that's fairly common in federal courtrooms that they kind of stack them up. It's just like three or four tiers worth of tables, you know, like you'd go into like any kind of a corporate classroom and you're just sitting in the front, there's a big projector or there's a big screen, whatever it may be. And they, and they kind of present the evidence and, and they can ask you questions too. Uh-huh, and they do. Yeah. They want clarifying questions and things like that now. Okay. So that's the, that's the experience one to 200 times, probably closer to 200 in your case. Um, did you ever yes. see members of those grand juries, uh, four persons or otherwise go forward and like go on a media tour where they talked about their dis- disdain for the people that they were either indicting or not? Uh, no, because it's supposed to be a secret proceeding. And there's actually rules inside the FBI as far as whether or not you can actually disclose the information that you take to grand jury. And we have little lists that are actually exclusive to people that are either on the 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 uh, rule of evidence proceedings or not. Yeah. Yes. What yep. is, I can't remember it what is, is it rule is it five e is it five e or six e. 5e, I think. Maybe 6e. I can't remember now. Okay. I, man, that's back in the day. I'm already like 10 days post-bureau career. That's it. You're yeah, right. I think it is 6e. I, I think it is too. Um, in any case, there are <laughs> rules about what uh, you know what you can speak about and who you can share information with, even inside the FBI. It's not even something that's equally available to all people. So the uh, the idea that this woman went out and, and did uh, CNN and, and maybe some of the other leftist type um, news sources talking about uh, how her disdain essentially for Donald Trump and how she would love to swear him in and you know, put him under, you know, subpoena him in. And she was disappointed that they didn't is totally unusual, I would say. Yeah. Yes, I would agree with that. And I'm frankly surprised that the the media, and I mean, I know the media wants to get the scoop and obviously that's a big one to get a four person on the Trump grand jury. Uh, But at the same time, if she does that, I don't know if it jeopardizes any of these recommended, recommended indictments because she's sort of broken protocol. I don't know what, what that, how that impacts because it's Georgia state law. I, I might be different than you and I are familiar with. Right. It's not a federal case they're bringing. This is a, uh, this is a state, uh, grand jury. And, and from what everything I can tell, it sounds like it's a prosecutor's nightmare. That was kind of the piece that I took away from it that she kind of, she may have screwed the pooch on all of their proceedings just because it's such a mess to do that sort of thing. Yeah. And this, it's just this effort to get famous, you know, how many jurors on, um, you know, on, on these high profile cases have, have then spoken out publicly. And I, I get it, it's your 15 minutes of fame, but at the same time, it's, it's your civil civic duty to, to be on that jury. You're not supposed to be the, the spotlight. That's, that, that's not your moment. That's right. Um, it's interesting. Phil mentioned like she's every 30 year old millennial that's out there in the world. I don't even know if they're considered millennials or what generation she is, but she's that generation that it's like, look what I did. Look at me. 
Um, I need the attention for this thing. It has nothing to do with her, as you mentioned. It's like your, your job is to be part of the system. You actually got called in to do part of your civic duty, which is a responsibility as a citizen to go sit on this jury uh, or grand jury in this case and just call balls and strikes. And and whether they yep. what is the what is the burden of proof that has to be done? Is it probable cause that they have to show? Yes, because the indictment is issued on uh, now. Uh, yeah, probable cause. Yeah. I just want to be. I, I, I want it to be the clear. Grand jury what people is are kind seeing. of like a referee. I mean, you you the referee doesn't go to the post game conference unless something catastrophic happened during the game and they became this is the news story. It's supposed to be about what happened on the field. Yes. The facts of the case in this case. No, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, you don't see the referee in the post game interviews. It's going to be either the winners, the losers, or whatever's going on. The referee is just part of the system that enables it. In the same way, we don't go interview the turf, or we don't go interview the crossbars um, on the you know the field goal crossbars, whether it you know deflected a uh, whether it deflected a a kick or not, because it's it's just part of the it's part of the apparatus that allows the system to process through, and having a, a, a juror injected him or herself into the the media spotlight because of it is really bizarre, especially when it's an ongoing grand jury, it sounds like. Yeah. And I mean, at least what I, the, the little bit that I saw at the club of hers talking about, it's a pretty voluminous uh, amount of uh, report that was being issued. And she referenced like six pages that were in there that had been removed for spacing. So, I mean, how many names could you fit on six pages of blank paper? Wow. They're going to try to bring charges against. Yeah, it's uh, it's bizarre. It's weird. I think uh, there is something to be said about uh, that need for that attention. And I'm be I'd be curious about how she grew up. It has nothing to do with any of our speculation on it. I think what her her behavior was inappropriate. Um, but I want to pivot a little bit to this uh, this news article that I sent over to you. This is guy uh, by a guy named Adam B. Coleman. Uh, Adam is on Twitter at uh, wrong underscore speak. Is that right, Phil? Is it, is it speak or think? What is his uh, handle? I sent it to you. At wrong underscore speak at. Okay. So he's at wrong underscore speak. So Adam B. Coleman, uh, someone I've been interacted with on Twitter in a good way. I, we've had some really interesting uh, conversations uh, in DM about race. I, I like the way that he phrases things. I like the way that he reflects on them. He seems like a good thinking individual. We don't agree on all the things I think, which is the kind of people that I like to talk to. I like to, to get that. So I'm going to just read some of the article here and Steve will talk about it a little bit and then we'll wrap the sucker up. Um, the article is entitled The Devastating Impact of America's High Rate of Single Parent Households on the Children and Families. Um, the picture is kind of a devastating picture of a little boy standing over a mom who's crying in a hallway. I don't know what that means, but that's not a good image. Um, when your wife is crying and the kids are standing there, they are also devastated. It's tough. So I'm just going to read a first little bit of this thing and I want to kind of get into you know, our discussion on this, which I think is a bigger problem in this country. Uh, so Adam says, uh, quote, usually when Americans chant about how we're number one, it's to brag to the rest of the world about our national accomplishments. But there's one area we're leading the world in that should not, we should not be celebrating single parent households. That is a catastrophic statement in so many ways. He says, according to the Pew Research Center, out of 130 countries and territories, the United States has the world's highest rate of children living in single parent households. And they say in this this uh, research statement, almost a quarter of U.S. children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no other adults. That's 23%, and more than three times the share of children around the world, which is a 7% ratio. So we're we're raising children without fathers most of the time. I think think single mothers are more common. In fact, I see um, m- moms brag about being single mothers. It's a really strange thing. I was just gonna say that, man. Feel I free to go with it. Run with it. My mouth. Why is that a yeah, thing? Yeah, it's it's almost like a new. It's like a new victimized 
intersectional thing to, to, to brag about. It's almost like, you know, look, look at all the, the weight that I'm, I'm holding on my shoulders. Right. And I just, I feel bad for you because that's, you know, it, it's not an immutable characteristic, which again, we always talk about like that shouldn't matter anyway, but like that, that's life decisions for most of the case. I mean, sometimes you might have a, a widow or something like that. That's, that's out of their control. Yes. And obviously you, our hearts go out to them, but for a lot of these people, it's just, well, I don't need a man. I, you know, I need a man like a fish needs a bicycle and such the, a weird the children <laughs> suffer. They do. Um, you know, I, 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 I might, I can't imagine, um, my home situation if you know my wife but and if my wife was not here and i was having you know take care of the kids or or vice versa and i know i feel bad when i've had to go out of town for any sort of length of time uh and i just you know you you miss out on things and it's it's just a challenge and i just, for that to be your day every single day um I can understand how you would feel, you know, that there's this, this is a, a notch in your belt as far as accomplishment because you're 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 bearing this load, but at the same time, you have to think about what the impact is on on you know your your children. Yeah, um, and there's a, a interesting little piece on here which I think is probably it's probably really obvious to most folks, but it says uh, uh, you know there's a for richer or poorer family structures and economic success in America. There's a whole uh, report by the American Enterprise Institute that's quoted here and says that we estimate that the growth and median income of families with children would be 44% higher today if the uh, the levels of marriage were the same as the 1980s. So we're making our country poorer by not having these things. I mean, as you mentioned, the, the physical struggle of just raising children is difficult enough with uh, one parent. I cannot imagine it. it. With two, it's a challenge. We've got three kids. It's it's, uh, And I know people have a bunch more. It turns out anybody who has a bunch of kids, like seven or eight, that is being successful, they have to be doing it with two parents. You don't see, you know, people like our, our recent interview with Mark Houck, um, you know, he has what, nine kids, I think, seven kids or nine kids. I, I already forgot. It's so many. I, I've talked to two guys that had like seven and nine kids each, and it was like, that's incredible, but you don't do that solo. Like that's not feasible at all. You can't even get the kids to run no, interference for each and, other. And that volume, old, the oldest children are actually even, I think, helping with the, the logistics. Yeah, they have uh, to. And I mean, that just you you have to go to from a two man to a three man zone once you get close to that double digit number of children. That's correct. So we had this funny discussion. My wife and somebody came to me. Um, he had four children uh, when I was having my third. And he said, uh, and he was a SWAT guy that's a FBI agent. And he said, the biggest change of having from two to three, because that's the biggest challenge, he, he said, um, and, and I'm one of six, so I, I sort of recognize this. He said, you have to go from uh, man defense to the zone defense, because one of them's always in the clear. <laughs> one of them's always open. Right now, my, my one that's open is almost always my two-year-old. Uh, the two other ones have like a lot of needs, like for academics, and they have a lot of attention needs, and they're, you know, they're trying to accomplish things or they want to paint and they're painting somewhere they shouldn't be painting or they've decided to take a marker and put a mustache on a, on a countertop or a cabinet or something. And my two-year-old is like running circles and God knows what he's doing. He's found a hammer or, you know, something like that. And yeah, once they, once you move into that zone defense, uh, there's no going back. Like <laughs> there's always, there's always someone that's open. I have two thoughts. So one is that there's that Jim Gaffigan joke about having, I think he has five kids. So he said, you know, having a fifth kid he said, imagine that you're, you're drowning in the ocean. That's and right. Someone hands you a kid. That's, and yeah, they drive out and they throw you a kid. Uh, Gaffigan is one of yes. my favorite clean comedians. It's a fantastic image. I'm sure that's what happened. My parents actually had three kids and then they had twins, um, which 
Oh, I don't know if you ever played music, but there's a concept in music that when you get to a thing called a stop code on, it tells you that that's the end of the song. And uh, my mom probably would have had more kids. Uh, but when you have twins, that's the stop code on. That's God's stop code on when you have a handful of them. It's just like, you're done. We're giving you two for one, but you're done. Just shut it down. And she not only had one of my, you know, one of my, um, my brother was born uh, vaginally and then my sister was, was a C-section. So she had two different types of delivery. Uh, it was an emergency oh C-section goodness. where they just ripped her open and you just go like, oh my God. Yeah. Like you got two for the price of one on every level, including uh, two radically different little people because one is a little boy who was just like us, like destructive and a little hurricane of, de- you know, disaster. And then the other one was like this little prissy thing that wanted to do ballet and didn't want to be involved with all the boys. You can't even, you know, dress them the same. No. Although my brother used to wear dresses. He's a lawyer now and he's, uh, and he's in his late thirties and he'd be, I think he would actually not even care, but he used to go and put on his sister's dress and like, no, we just, she couldn't even fight him. There was too many other kids. There's too, there's too many other kids over there. Uh, that being said, back to that kind of the article, it says the lack of wealth makes single mothers the most vulnerable to homelessness, which I think has also been my experience as someone who's run on 911 calls. I just think it's the saddest thing right now. So um, all of my friends who have children, I don't know. I don't think I have any friends who are divorced. I I must have some somewhere, but I can't think of any off the top of my head that, uh, and there's maybe a generational change there. It, it certainly is a big thing that uh, Ben Shapiro has always talked about. The three ways that you don't become impoverished in this country are you finish high school, you get a job, and you don't have children until you're married. I think that's all of my friends. And, uh, and it's probably many of our listeners, but if you're not, and you, and you had a wonderful experience, uh, having a family that was divorced, like put it in the comments. I want to know about it. Cause that's like, you know, my wife was a child of divorce and, and grew up and was just like devastated by it. It was the worst thing that happened to her. And she was 16 years old. She was almost old enough to be on her own. And it still devastated her, uh, depression and all the other things and therapy. And just, it's such a, it's such a difficult thing that we have that first world problem where people in this country think that marriage is optional for raising children. I don't know that anybody's ever had that experience anywhere um, in history of the human of the human race. It's just never been a thing the way that it has been probably in our lifetimes since the eighties. Yeah, I think that the, the just the gender roles bring so much uniqueness to either side uh, that it's just too. You're going to get us canceled off YouTube, but keep one. going. Of course, I will. Uh, <laughs> proudly, by the way. Uh, but I, you know, I, I had this discussion with my my older one. Uh, and I'll just say to him, like, hey, if, if you get sick and you uh, need help, or do you want me or mom? He's like, oh, mom. Interesting. What, what, what you don't like me? <laughs> you're not, like, no, you're not soft. And... Her job. I was like, no, right. no kidding. No yes. kidding. I said, if if you want to just punch something and have like, you know, some sort of physical involvement, are you going to mom? He's like, absolutely not going to you. That's right. We, we both bring different sides, you know, different, different features to the, to the relationship. And I, I really feel, you know, that it's, it's, it's almost mission impossible to bring that, uh, you know, hundred percent on one person. Yeah. And then you, you, the other, from the other side of the coin is if it, I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity and, um, my wife sometimes will take the kids to go visit her, her mother and I'll have to stay home for, for a reason. And I'll have that like two days where you're like, okay, back to being single and, and sort of a bachelor. And you're like, well, I'm going to save up all these tasks. And then you do the, the task and you look up and you're like, it's 1045 AM. I mean, your, your, your time for, for the, for all the single people in the audience and childless people in the audience, you, you don't realize if you think you're busy, you're not, you're not. No, like the day doesn't end when you have kids because right when right when I think I've got it under control, one of them like poops through something and the other one decides like I don't know, they just ate like 
snow outside and now they're throwing up because they've eaten some bacteria out of a swamp or something. Like I, I never, I never feel like I'm ahead of it. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost, I'm almost even with the tasks. And, um, I'm sure people who have more children than, than I do know exactly how bad that is. Yeah. There's no, there's no, uh, solving problems. There's only just like staving it off. My, I always felt like whenever my, my wife would leave, which was very rare, but when she left me along with the kids, I, my standards and, and my buddies have always told me, um, we're really, really bad moms, but we're like pretty good dads. But when she was gone, like my only job is that like, they're still alive when she gets back. Like, I just have to like, it's like, correct. it's like main, maintain, like the fishbowl doesn't have to be clean. I just have to have the, like the fish not on the top. They can't be floating, right? They have to still be swimming. Yes. So I'm just constantly just and, in chaos mode until she shows back up. And that's a terrible. And the kids are aware. They know. When my wife has left, I'll be like, hey, mom's not here, guys. So you got dad. And they're like, oh, oh. <laughs> right. They, they tend to not make as big of a mess. Right. Our meals are going to be suboptimal and uh, we're going to just be basically treading water until we can find someone to pull us in because we can't find the shore on our own. Uh, all, all right. Well, that's that's a sad perspective on it, but I do think it's worth us noting. I think that, uh, folks, if you are one of my one interesting uh, listeners who is not married, when you decide to make that choice, make it for real, make it for good. I told my wife that uh, I'd rather I'd rather be dead than than not finish this uh, mission. And I think if you go into it like a zero fail mission, it will change your perspective. I know a lot of people coming out of our 80s and you know born in the in the mid and uh, the early and, and mid 80s experienced a lot of divorce in their personal life. And I've had, I met a lot of people, including some of these radical traditional Catholics that, that were, we've been uh, investigating on the bureau end of it that have told me that uh, they came from divorce and they said, you know, this is not a thing that we could tolerate. And so there, I think there's a backswing. I hope, I hope that we swing ourselves out of this into a better spot. Maybe the pendulum swings back, but uh, it's, it's one of the most important things you can make. It's one of the top three things. Let's get educated. Don't make babies until you have someone that's going to be in it all the way to the end, one way or another. Agreed, man. Agreed. And I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I, I'm encouraged. I, we were just taking stock of our relationships with other couples that we know, adults that have children. And uh, we we knew people who maybe were divorced that before we met them, uh -huh. but I don't think anybody that was, uh, you know, within our peers that we've kind of like come through adulthood with, uh, they're all still together. So, uh, you know, it's anecdotal, but, uh, you know, the plural of anecdote is, is data. So, so maybe I'm, I'm hope, hopeful. Love it. Thank you for saying something that I didn't even know that was true. The plural of anecdote is data. That's such a good statement. Um, folks, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. We're appreciative of you listening. If you do have time, give us a five-star review. We had a big flux of those come in over the uh, over the weekend. We had a huge uh, episode on the, this Monday with uh, my machine gun lawyer. If you haven't heard that, go out there. It's probably our most popular episode so far. Uh, followed closely by episodes with my buddy Steve Friend here. Steve, thank you for joining us. Tell people where they can follow you again, for those who don't know, and tell us about your book, where they can buy that sucker, which I know is um, slowly trending on the Amazon list. Yes. Uh, True Social is at real underscore Steve Friend on Twitter at real Steve Friend. My book is on Amazon right now on pre-sale. It's called True Blue, My Journey from Beat Cop to FBI Whistleblower. And you and I will be appearing with uh, Mr. Jesse Waters later today. Uh, so hopefully, uh, you know, that, get, that gets mentioned, but it's still early. The, the book gets published in July. So uh, there's there's some time to build up the pre-sale figures on it. I dig it. Um, we I will see you tonight. Phil, you want to read us out with a, you got a five-star review queued up there, buddy? Yeah, not just that, but a nice give, send, go message from Julia. She wrote, Kyle, retired essay here, thanking you 
for doing your best to expose what the FBI has become in the last decade. The once great agency that I worked for is in shambles. And thanks to people like you, I think changes can eventually occur. Until recently, I felt very alone in my changing views. Not anymore. Thanks, Julia, for that donation. A nice comment. That's wonderful. And then we had a nice five-star review from No Slow Joe who wrote, Kyle, thank you for all you are doing. You are an inspiration to all who hear you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, we appreciate that. Folks, uh, if you want to give us a comment on any of the the, the uh, audio places, you can actually comment on the Podbean app. We have a few of those. They've been somewhat interesting for me. Um, our, our biggest downloads are still coming from Apple on the audio. If you can listen to us on iHeartRadio, if you're uh, normally a video watcher, you can go back and see these on the audio. You can you can uh, subscribe wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple are the three biggest that I'm seeing. And then uh, you can always catch us on Rumble where we are uncensored. If you follow us on YouTube, you'll catch like small snippets. I'm giving, uh, I'm, I'm putting out little pieces of our interviews so we don't get ourselves canceled over there, but we're just trying to bring people the message where they are. You can't, uh, you can't make people move to you unless they know you're there. So we're going to do all those things. Uh, we do appreciate the support. Thanks so much for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. And we will catch you again on Monday with a long form interview uh, that you're not going to want to miss about trying to disrupt government-funded child sex trafficking with some Project Veritas whistleblowers that I'm friends with. So look forward to our Monday show. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.